professional. Efficient, adult, cooperative, not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. See, we can go anywhere you want us. You can walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions, we are in charge. Okay. All right. Well, this is episode 153. Tell me where to turn. The uh, Don't follow us on Twitter right now unless you want to send us Bitcoin and get double the amount sent back to you. This episode will be failed, by the way. I'm putting in the call right now. Why do you say that? Because we're using audio... Audio methods from like 2016. Well, we've got options. I've got the I've got the audio method we used to use as a backup. It's always good to have options. Okay. So if this doesn't work, and by the way, the only reason we're doing this is because you and Dave sounded like you guys were phoning in from like a subway station last episode. I don't know what was going on. Well, I mean, we only have the highest quality podcasting here, which is why Glenn started the episode by saying this is going to be a failed episode. <laughs> I read in broadcasting school, that's always a good way to start. Well, the good thing is my prediction is this episode will never air. Oh. That's my that's my prediction. Oh, this episode this episode is airing. I uh I can assure you of that. So you can find me uh, on Twitter at Tommy Two Underscore Zero. You can find the show at Where to Turn Pod. Oh, you can find me at Glenn Three Underscore Eleven, and you can find me at Point Break Underscore Dave. So, gentlemen, uh, I have an announcement to make. I have been traded from Team Hoax. All right, we okay. worked out a deal. Uh, I've now been traded to. Team, it's really not that bad. It's a it's a competitor of Team Hoax, but it is slightly uh, slightly different change of scenery. But I feel like I'm going to have a Chris Davis type situation where I'm going to get to a new new situation and I'm just going to start hitting bombs, just 60, 60 bombs this year. Wow, and Team, it's not that bad. Really gives you a uh, gives you a broad spectrum of opinions there. Yeah, well, let me tell you this spectrum of opinion. Uh, at the golf course tonight, as I have want to do on Wednesday nights, get a quick nine in after work. Sitting on the uh, card in the first tee, an uh, elderly gentleman. He, uh, he, uh, he matters to me. Let's just put it that way, okay? His life matters to me. He pulled up next to me and uh, had on a mask, and I don't typically see that at the course, so we started to engage in conversation. I said, hey you know, how you doing? You being safe? And he said, yeah, I'm doing good. And I said, man, this is crazy times, huh? And he said, yeah. And I, and I he said, well, do you know anybody that's had it yet? And I said, actually, you know, I, I finally do. I said, a, a friend of mine back in Texas got it, but um, it wasn't that bad. I said, what about you? And he goes, um, yeah, I know five that have had it. And I said, well, how bad was it? And he's like, oh, they've all passed away. Two cousins oh. and three coworkers. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, but it, it was apparently he was so broken up about it that he was out of the golf course. <laughs> what better way to honor their, their memory? So I, uh, I, in honor of this guy, uh, his name was Daryl, by the way. Oh, it still is, probably. As far as I know, <laughs> it was pretty, uh, things were getting a little rocky there by number nine. Uh, but uh, yeah, in honor of Daryl, um, I, uh, I asked, for, uh, asked for, requested, and was granted a trade. Huh. I think Daryl may be a huge liar. How about that? <laughs> now, Daryl let me know that he was 65 years old. And he was going to be hitting from the front tees because he now gets Social Security. So Dave is still on team. I just don't want to hear your numbers. And I think I'm on. I think I'm on team head in the sand. I'm on team. I want to hear hospitalizations and deaths per million or per hundred thousand or whatever. I don't want total numbers. I don't want cases because those are obviously you know, influenced by how much testing and all these other things that are going on. The things that are baseline measures are hospitalizations and deaths and a metric that's based on the population. That's all I care about. Something I heard somebody say yesterday that that I thought was a very succinct and articulate way of saying this is they said the number of people infected with covid and the number of people sick with covid is a drastically different number and until we can come to grips with that we're never going to be able to have a rational discussion about it i think that's a very good way of saying it i'm with that i'm just gonna leave it in god's hands and watch this nascar race i was gonna say the uh the wednesday night bristol all-star race is certainly gonna mean that we're only gonna get the finest and best broadcasting out of glenn tonight i'm I'm already looking forward to that. Have you seen the the blue lights that are under the cars? Yes, they've got. As they continue continue to pay tribute to the uh, community, they've now all installed lights <laughs> under their cars. <laughs> I'm sure Bubba Wallace was. This was his idea. No doubt about that. Uh, I don't know about that. No, the thing I'm most excited about, now they don't have the cone on a chain, but they have the virtual version of that, and I'm very excited about that. (laughs) I think the most conservative driver in the the whole field put Bubba in the wall tonight, so I think that was to send a message. The most conservative? I haven't watched any of the race yet. The most conservative driver in the whole whole field would have to be what? Ross Chastain. It was uh, Michael McDowell. Ah, yeah, that's a good one. That was going to be my next guess, actually. You, you haven't seen the Bubba rant? No, I haven't seen anything that happened tonight. Okay. Well, he got put in the wall in the qualifying race, and he basically did a he basically did a promo against McDowell, and said that he was a he was a joke, and he's the nicest guy in the garage, and he looked forward to his apology text that had a scripture with it, <laughs> and he walked off. It's a good bit though. Maybe you should uh maybe you should start doing that. Like every text you send include a scripture <laughs> and an apology. Oh, speaking of apologies. I apologize to you guys that we're just now doing this episode because we should have done this several weeks ago, but we are going to dive into a movie that when it was revealed that 2 thirds of this podcast had never seen it. It sent the other member of the podcast into deep hypnosis. But we're yeah, going to talk about 
as you're watching the movie, if you haven't seen it, you're trying to piece together exactly why he's flying from one state, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast, from New York to California to meet his wife. What's the nature of their relationship? If you have Glenn sitting there in the room with you telling you the entire movie as it's happening, you'll learn very quickly that they are estranged. His wife has taken a fancy job at a company, which apparently at this company, sexual harassment is okay in the office. Like, in fact, it's actually encouraged in the office. Yes. Again, it was the 80s. But it was also weird that when, and this goes back to what I was saying, like, there's a guy that works for the company that is a bad guy, if you will. He's a heel. And he's immediately starts hitting on John McClane's wife. Like the first time you see him, and I'm like, okay, it's the '80s. I'm guessing McLean's wife is some sort of secretary, but she apparently is like a bigwig. Like, do you ever do that up the corporate ladder? Isn't that always supposed to be down? There's a lot to unpack in that statement, there, Dave. A lot. So what you're saying is you only endorse office sexual harassment when it's clearly the male is in a dominant position and it's a subordinate that can't help but to to acquiesce no is that what you're saying i'm saying that this guy is acting like he has nothing to lose but clearly she seemed at least on peer level with him right which which i agree is is a little bit of a strange plot point if you've got if you've got somebody at the staff level yeah trying to sexually harass a vp that doesn't usually go well wouldn't seem like it at least at least in my understanding they cut back to the airport and of course the companies sent a limo to pick up John McClane because this company is doing very well, as we'll learn all throughout the movie. They send the worst limo driver of all time to pick him up, a guy by the name of Argyle. Whoa. It's his first day. Were you guys not excited to see Leo Rush was the limo driver? Because I was. You felt felt like we could just use a little bit of the 23-year-old... What is it? Solid 23-year-old piece of gold, solid gold. I can't remember. <laughs> he's he's no longer employed. No. Let's just let's just leave it at that. So as we get just to the beginning through the beginning parts of the movie, I want to go to like the beginning of the beginning. Did you guys read into the troubles they went through just to get this movie filmed and like and casted? And no. Cast? Or is it casted? I don't know. I believe it's cast. Okay, let's go cast. Um, so the book that this movie is based on is a sequel to another book, and it was made into a movie. No kidding. <laughs> and uh, Frank Sinatra starred in the the first movie adaptation. So contractually, they, they had to offer him this role. <laughs> He was like 60-something years old, but they had to basically say, hey, if you want to do it, uh, you can do it. He obviously turned it down. <laughs> they then offered it to, I believe, Clint Eastwood was the next choice. Stallone after that, Schwarzenegger, Burt Reynolds, and there was like three others <laughs> before they got to Bruce Willis. And, and essentially, when it was announced that Bruce Willis was going to be doing this role, it was viewed as laughable in Hollywood because he was essentially he did commercials and he did comedies on TV, like rom com stuff. 
Well, I will say, and this is a little further down in my notes, but there is a scene where he, when he first gets there, he's cleaning up in the, uh, in his wife's office because he's been traveling all day. And it's him and the, just the tank top supposed to look like an action hero. And I put down the note, man, he looks small for an action hero. Like, this isn't the rock in this movie. Like, he's not very imposing. No, but I think that was the idea. It was kind of uh, breaking that mold that action movies of the time had to be. Okay, so I think the same guy that did uh, produce this movie was the guy who produced Predator. And they kind of got away from, okay, think about Predator. Every major character in that movie is is basically like an 80s WWF <laughs> character, yes. more or less. Yes. Like, if yeah, there's Apollo Creed, Schwarzenegger, and there's like four Brock Lesnar's <laughs> that are all fighting the the alien. And I think they were just getting away. And you couldn't. I, I don't think the character goes over as well as being ordinary if he's like shredded and he's got huge arms and a tattoo that says Devil Slayer <laughs> or something like that. He just needs to be a dude. He's just a dude from New York. Yeah. So the Frank Sinatra movie that got made was it was it an action shoot 'em up movie or was it totally different than Die Hard or do we not know the answer to that? I mean, I've never seen it. I mean, I think well, it next was, week. Tell me where to turn. I think it was it certainly had action elements, but it, nothing like this. Would the movie have been better if it was Sinatra? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it would have been far, far worse. So, okay. So back to the movie right. itself. We've been y- introduced yeah, to yes. John McClane. Now it's the bad guy's turn. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's been, he's picked up by Argyle and they're, they're on their way to the, uh, to the office building where the party's going to take place. And, and I mentioned Argyle's a terrible driver. He's also a terrible person because he just immediately lays in with the personal questions to Bruce Willis, which is great for me because it helps fill in the plot points. But if, if I'm being picked up by somebody in a professional car service and they start asking me about my marriage and why I didn't move with my wife, they're going to be getting a one-star review, let me tell you that. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be sliding the app out, we'll be declining to leave a gratuity, and they'll be getting a one-star. But that's like... As we've been watching many movies from the 80s, that's, like, kind of classic. Like, there's no, like, you... Okay, he's flying from New York. He has a job there. She's in L.A. You need about five seconds of them interacting when he gets there to sense the, okay, they were married, but obviously that's not going well. But instead, we have to, like, spell it out by the letter of, hey, here's exactly what we want the audience to know. By this yeah, weird, we didn't get a lot of credit. Q and A session. One other, one other note I had about this limo ride is there's there's some minor Waco style continuity problems, which is the outside level of light varies all over the place when they cut in and out of the limo. It's dark, it's light, it's dark, it's light. How do they miss that when they're editing the movie together? And also, like there, I think it's when he finally gets there. And he gets out of the limo because limo driver talks to him for a little bit because he's going to stay around. And it's like noonday sun, yet it's supposed to be after work hours on Christmas Eve. 
where the sun <laughs> sets really early. Well, we all know the sun's still out at 8.30 on Christmas Eve. Also, because we're about to get into this, so he, he goes in the building. They're having a party. It's after five because wife says something to her assistant about, like, you're making me feel bad still working. Who, what company has their company party on Christmas Eve? And then, like, half the company is still working, like, on Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's a trash company. Let's just go ahead and say what it is. They're Japanese, right? Again, the, your words, not mine. Well, I'm just thinking maybe they don't have as high of a recognition of that of that holiday. Well, yeah, Mr. Takati doesn't uh doesn't observe the the day the Lord was born, is that what you're saying? Uh, well, I mean, he's going to find out pretty soon whether that was a good a good <laughs> choice or not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, you also like you can kind of make the uh the argument that, you know, I guess the stereotype of Japanese businessmen is they're very buttoned up, they're very structured, like, okay, maybe they do work on Christmas Eve, yet in this very structured, buttoned-up company, the head sales guy's doing cocaine at one point, and then having sex in his office during the party. Yeah, I had I had all these notes, and then just the question to myself of, what kind of company is this? <laughs> guys ripping lines of cocaine, there's office sex happening yeah what kind of company is this as john mcclain's making his way up another thing they go out of their way again to establish is that the building has very high security yes he has to he there's a there's a 1989 version of like a touchscreen panel that he has to validate his identity they they mentioned something that i didn't well, really catch about how they've got the elevators programmed to stop on certain floors there's lots of uh, lots of security measures in place. He also has to type in the name of his wife because that was another bit like she's using her maiden name which A, why front desk guy can't just tell him. Like They have to show how technologically advanced the company is. The spelling of her name also changes on the screen while he, like he types it in one and then clicks it and it changes the spelling of it. So, that autocorrect. So, <laughs> Yeah, so either they had really good 1989 predictive text or uh, we found another continuity error. But he finally gets back they, to see her. Yeah, so he gets back to see his wife. And then they have this kind of like weird where he's going to, I guess he's going to change clothes. Yeah. Which didn't make sense because he hasn't really done anything. No. He's got to get in formal attire. I mean, he took the limo ride from hell, but other than that, he hasn't done anything. <laughs> so, but again, it's just a means to an end. He had to take his shoes off to do the toe thing. He had to change so that he was just wearing the the wife beater, and so he could he could have that look. Yeah, to get the John McClane uniform. So, is there anything else we need to cover before we uh, have the appearance of the villains? I I don't think so. And I almost man, it's it's a it's a close race for the lead villain is almost the star of this movie. <laughs> it's like one and one A. But yeah, go ahead, go. No, the the bad guys they they seem very well organized. So they do have to kind of shoot their way into the building. But they've they've got a whole. This is 
this wasn't something they came up with on the fly. They've got a guy that's going to be an imposter security guard. They've got people that know where to go to access the different tech in the building. They, uh, they um, seem to ha- understand the nuances of the parking structure very well. So they, they, they come with a plan, and they come with a lot of guys. Yes. No, it's very well, it's very well orchestrated. And as someone who was watching this for the first time that wasn't sitting alongside Glenn, having Glenn help out with the uh, plot, my big question mark here was, what are these guys doing? Because we got spoon-fed the whole relationship between John McClane and his wife, but there's been no uh, allusion to what might be in this building that someone would possibly want to pull off an extremely well-organized heist. So, first, I was shocked that it was Professor Snape, the main bad guy. I was like, whoa, and apparently this was his very first movie. Yeah, that's true. And then I'm like, why are they robbing this company? <laughs> Unless they want cocaine, <laughs> why are they here? Right, there's plenty of cocaine available at this company, but other than that, there's a very funny scene where, and, and I don't know, I really don't even know what happened because one guy's got some some technology out where it seems like he's trying to tap into certain phone lines. And then another guy's getting frustrated that he's not moving quickly enough and then just whips out a chainsaw. <laughs> and, I, and I guess, I don't know what, what he cut through. If he cut through all the phones for the building, just wiped out communications, but he just, he just unloads a chainsaw on all the wires in the, uh, so that, in the control room. That was uh, Carl, <laughs> the guy with the, the long blonde hair. Yes. Did you know, I don't know if he was in any other movies, but do you know his background was that he was a ballet dancer? before he did this movie. Really? And I don't know exactly why they found him or how to be in this, but yeah, that's that's what he did before this. And Alan Rickman had just done just theater. Yeah. He had done no no films whatsoever. Well, when Carl pulls out the chainsaw, I had to click the little menu button because it's like, am I watching a new fighter in No Holds Barred? Like, that was such... A no holds barred scene of him just cutting through the pipe with all the the wire in it with a chainsaw. It was. It was kind of like the. That's a great call. It was kind of like the end of no holds barred. And I could not explain what the pipes were. No. Yeah. Like what the significance was of that guy I had to cut all those lines and everything. Like he was just going to be blown to pieces <laughs> if he didn't finish it in time. So the key, the key thing that happens here is as the this attack starts and they infiltrate the party McLean's still not joined the party and he's able to he's able to basically just shake free and it's funny how he does it because I'm like oh is he just gonna leave <laughs> like be like well I'm gonna go ahead and just head back to the airport now because he just kind of he just kind of he doesn't go try to find his wife he doesn't try to be a hero he just kind of just exits stage left you just see him walk out and Leo Rush pulls up. He's like, back to the airport. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. all done here. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't <laughs> work well. out. But here's one thing, and I stop me if something else happens before this that we need to cover. But So McLean's essentially hidden. The bad guys don't know he's there. He's, you know, on his own. Yeah, he's a ghost at this point. They, I think this is at the part where they go into detail about there's seven locks or is that later at some point they discuss that they need to infiltrate in these certain stages but stage one 
is they need the CEO or the guy yes, in charge. Mr. Takai. Or Takati, sorry. Yes. Mr. Takati. And as Tommy's pointed out, very well organized, right? They got the wiring, they got the security guard, they know the parking structure, they know everything. No one looked up what the CEO that they need looks like because they have no idea. <laughs> They're just looking around like, hi, man. Anybody got any ideas? I'm looking at this last name and I don't think it's this guy over here. But there's about 50 other people it could be. Yeah. They somehow have schematics of the phone system. Don't have a headshot of the CEO of a multinational company. That's a great point. Pre-internet. They do finally identify after after some back and forth with the party who Mr. Takati is, and they pull him to the side because he has a passphrase that they need to get out of him. And this is where Mr. Takati decides he's going to be a hard ass about things. <laughs> Indeed. Because whatever's in that vault, he ain't giving it up. No. And but he he outlines that. Yeah, they say I need the the password, the passcode for the get through the first level. And he's like, "Well, I'm not going to give it to you." And basically, hey, if you don't give it to us, uh, I'm going to shoot you. And he's like, "You know, once in the morning or whatever, when Tokyo finds out, they're just going to change all the other ones and whatever." So the point was brought up as we were watching the movie, like, "Okay, then why not just give <laughs> up the first one if you know they're going to be able to change all the other ones?" Well, he doesn't do that. And it doesn't work out well. No. No, and, and I was surprised at the lack of patience they had with Mr. Takati because I feel like his passphrase should have been a pretty important part in this whole process. They pretty much blew his head off uh, without, without giving him much, much option to negotiate. Yeah, considering but, how much difficulty they or how much time they spent trying to figure out who was Mr. Takati... <laughs> And then, like, they find him, and they're like, all right, well, plan B. Like, why don't we just start yeah. with plan B? Because <laughs> plan B actually worked decently. But, yeah, they they uh, they spent more time trying to identify him than they did actually getting the information out of him. It led us to maybe the greatest line of the movie, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I, I believe Alan Rickman rejoins the party and says... Uh, Mr. Takati will not be joining us for the rest of his life. And there were a lot of lines written in this. So the screenplay script and everything was written once. They didn't film the movie yet, but they wrote it all out. And then the original writer was fired because the guy that was uh, producing it wanted to, wanted it to have kind of a sort of a comedic feel to it. I think that goes back to the the hero is kind of an everyday dude. He's not a robot. He's not a big just muscle head or whatever um but they wanted other clever parts throughout the movie and the original writer just didn't have that capacity so he wrote everything out it was a different ending and uh they kind of looked at it and they're like nope new guy so they brought a new guy in and the beginning of the movie like the first stages were all the same but as they were filming this movie they when they started they only had like 30 or 40 percent of it written when they started filming <laughs> like he's writing it sounds like a terrible plan <laughs> as they're making the movie and he's like working 16 hours a day just trying to keep up <laughs> and just kind of stay ahead of the curve a little bit wow i loved that there was it was more there was more cussing and more adult language than i was expecting in this movie it had a more of a gritty feel than i expected 
It did. Yeah, a little more than I remember, too. Lots of MF bombs. Did you watch it with yeah. your kids? <laughs> Every Friday night. <laughs> we kept him awake. So, I believe at this point, you know, the... Uh, the uh, we don't really have a name for them. The bad guys, the group, they're running around, you know, uh, doing their different tasks to get into the vault, which is apparently their ultimate goal, as we know at this time. And McLean is, he's still, he hasn't made his presence known. He's sneaking around. He's, uh, eventually his plan is to try to radio the police or radio for help. But at some point in this, he is crawling around and he sees them unloading like missile, like rocket launcher cases, like several of them. And at that point in the movie, I think that's that's when you tag out. You're just like, well, <laughs> they don't know I'm here. I'm just gonna take the stairs down, and maybe I can, maybe I'll pass a cop on my way to the airport. But like, why does he stick around at that point? Like, what's his plan? I don't know what his plan is, but it, I think it's the fact that his wife is there. Eh. Yeah, she didn't even use his name on the employee directory. Come on. He's got his handgun that has like nine rounds in it. Like, I'm going to stick around and see if I can make this make this happen. Yeah, but as, as the... Uh, I guess I don't know if they're terrorists. I think they're just thieves. As they've taken over the building... Um, and I think it was after they shot the CEO. Doesn't doesn't Alan Rickman kind of run in real dramatically <laughs> and shoot fire up yes. in the ceiling? Yes. Like it's always looked really odd. It looks like he's doing some kind of disco move. <laughs> like I I wouldn't have taken that seriously. Like it's oh it's a gunshot, but ah, did you see how that guy was holding it? Like there's no way he's gonna shoot any of us. <laughs> there's a great line. So when. When McLean, around this time, he takes out his first of the bad guys and has his first radio contact with Alan Rickman, he also has another, probably the second greatest line in the movie, which is, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> that was pretty great. That's when he, he yeah, wrote it, too, right? Yeah, because that one guy had ventured <clears throat> up there and was looking for him. And they got into it, and he just he just lucked out. Like, that's his, not his luckiest moment, but he just lucks out that they fall down the stairs, and he just breaks his neck and lets out a real weird squeal when it happens, too. Like, I don't think, if you fell down the stairs, concrete stairs, and you snapped your neck, I think you would just be gone. you probably not going to have any reaction. He squealed like he was nine all of a sudden. He also... After his first kill, he gets the machine gun. And he's like, hey, you know what? I don't have shoes. So he takes off the guy's shoes and then quickly discards them because they're too small. Here's my question. The guy was bigger than McLean. How bad, how much of a difference could that be? Like, the guy's not, like, a size 5, right? Like, if McLean's a 10 and he's a 9, don't you jam your foot in there to have shoes? Like, don't you deal with it? they made it. Probably not realistic, but I think they made it look pretty drastic. Because, as I remember, like, that shoe he's holding up looks like the guy he just threw down the stairs is about 5'5", maybe, you know? 
It's like a size seven and a half. I think here's my uh, tip to anyone in a hostage situation. Always take the shoes. <laughs> Even if they're a little tight, always take the shoes. One other observation about these bad guys, every single one of them had fabulous hair. Yes. I mean, the uh, the amount of people that won the hair lottery that were on this this team of mercenaries, which, by the way, a very diverse team of mercenaries. It looked like the community college uh, <laughs> calendar there. We did have a few of the henchmen, not anyone doing any of the brain work, but a few of the henchmen were the classic Eastern European bad guys, which is always good. Before we were all afraid of the Middle Eastern, <laughs> we had the oh no. we had the Rocky Rocky Four Russian Yugoslavian people to be afraid of. Very very Vince McMahon booking here. <laughs> yes, so all the all the evil foreign countries in their most stereotypical form. There are several, so as, as the villains are becoming more and more aware, aware that they have a problem, there are several variants of, variations of battles that happen. The, um, the one that cracks me up is there, there is a prolonged gun battle on the roof, and I'm talking all hell breaking loose. Nobody on the ground hears this thing. <laughs> I mean, that, I think Glenn was getting tired of me just screaming at the TV like, how is nobody hearing this? How has nobody Eve. called the police? But there, nobody's I mean, around. There's World War Three happening on the roof, and nobody hears it. Well, even so, there's that, and there's also this is about the time that the first call goes out to the patrol officer, uh, who's the dad from Family Matters, <laughs> and he's getting this. They're going stereotypes all the way, even though. He said he was getting all those Twinkies for his wife, but they're like, what can we have this police officer doing? Oh, yeah, he's a convenience store buying like a 16-pack of Twinkies. <laughs> but he he rolls out of there, and I can't remember if he was in his car yet or if he was just looking up at the building, and there are, he can't hear anything, <laughs> and he's at a distance. But there's like a flash of light, like looks like the end of Kaboom Town <laughs> in Addison, and he's just kind of like, huh. Yeah, it's probably nothing. I'll just circle up there and then, you know, knock on the door. the The doorman has luxurious hair. He's got everything. Everybody put together. does. Kind of looks like Huey Lewis, <laughs> and he was very nice. And uh, let's leave leave these uh, leave these guys alone to their to their party. But also, John McClane would not have that. No, and yeah. also before they even radioed patrol officer. Like the switchboard operator was giving him a whole hard time, and he like knew the channel to be on, and he was like, "No, I'm a cop," and she like they almost didn't send anyone, and then he's like, "Like, there's no way he can be like, hey, look, I'm NYPD. Here's my badge number. Here's my name. Call them and verify it, and then send SWAT over here." Like, he was just like arguing with them like he's some kid. It was the dumbest <laughs> thing. I don't know. I kind of thought the uh, when he needed help or whatever, and the lady didn't take him seriously. She's like, "Sir, this line is for emergencies." And he's like, "What am I? What do you think I'm trying to do? Order an effing pizza?" <laughs> so, as John McClane's amazing deductive powers continue, he realizes that the only way to get the attention of the police officer 
is to shoot directly at the police officer. Because yeah, that will like, certainly get his attention. I didn't like this part. I mean, one, he's also a police officer. Like, I, I don't think he's going to do that. Like, in his general direction, but he just no, bombards he, this vehicle with bullets. Yeah. Well, did he, he unloads, doesn't he also throw a in the car? body off? Or am I crazy? Well, that no, that was at the... Wasn't that the first thing he did? Because then the the cop panics and starts driving in reverse. Yes. Right. But then why does he shoot at him? Because the cop radios in and says, we need backup out here. Somebody's trying to turn my car into Swiss cheese. <laughs> well, he didn't know at that point. He's just saying, I'm, I'm pulling out all the stops. But in in reality, Family Matters dad would have been split in half with gunfire. They'd have found him dead on the bottom of that hill. But he... he Gets out of there unscathed. I guess I didn't. I even, don't like this part. I of guess it. I didn't even pick up on that. That that was McLean shooting at him. I just assumed it was the bad guys. Well, no, and maybe just, that's why he did. Is he thought maybe that cop's so dumb that he would have thought a guy just committed suicide and not send the SWAT team. So he had to he had to hammer the point home, as it were. <laughs> See, there you go. There it is. Oh, by the way, that's the cop's name sense. was Powell. So sorry, I wrote that down on the next page. And McLean is able to get some radio contact where he can talk directly to Powell. Yes. Now, I believe, I think it was right around here, because it was shortly after he put the body in the elevator with the message on it, that McLean is traversing through the air ducts. And when he comes out of the air ducts, his tank top is a different color. <laughs> I have the same note. And not like How, it got dirty. Happened, like yes. it's a completely... what, happened, what happened with the continuity here? Well, they didn't have... A number one air hadn't been to blow out those vents in a few years. It was not dirty. So it was built up. His tank top turned green is what you're yes. saying. He doesn't have shoes, but he changed shirts. There's also an awesome scene when he's trying to navigate his way around where he uses a gun with a rope around it as a grappling hook. Oh, yes. And it barely holds, as every good action movie. The fact that I've learned from Glenn that they were writing the script as they were (laughs) filming the movie explains so much about some of these scenes. So is that the the elevator scene? Yes. So... Yeah, it all connects. They were writing as they as they went along, and where they filmed this was in an existing office building that just happened to be on some kind of property that was owned by the Fox Studios. So <clears throat> they were able to use, I think, the first couple floors to film, and then like the top five or six floors, the majority were quite literally under construction at the time. So it's not like they had this idea of, okay, all the floors are going to be under construction. It was already like that. And they would just walk through, as they're writing the movie, the different floors and put together like the fight scenes and stuff. So they would walk through and they'd be like, okay, well, we can have them fight and hit each other, but uh, hey, there's a chain hanging here and there's this roller thingy so we can have them jump off of this onto this and finish off in the, when he fights Carl. We'll finish him off with this chain. And that, that elevator scene um, was written, you know, exactly exactly like that. But when they when they set it up, the stunt man, when he 
made that jump, he didn't he didn't hit the mark he was supposed to, and he fell. And obviously, they had like the they had the bag or whatever, you know, thirty feet below that he landed on. But they there's that shot where that guy doesn't hold on where he's supposed to is in the movie. Huh. And you see the stuntman fall, and then they just have it where Bruce Willis holds on to the next elevator shaft. Wow. That's interesting notes. So I do want to ask this, though. Just looking at when they start filming this movie, okay? Every actor they wanted, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, we went through them, turned them down. So they get rom-com Bruce Willis. They get the co-star who has never acted in a movie before. They don't have a completed script. And they have like this half under construction office building. And they're like, I think we got everything we need, guys. I think there was, I, I think the Fox Studios just trusted the director and the producer. I, I think that's where, that's how it got made. Was they trusted those two guys. Otherwise... Yeah, you know what? I I think I, I don't see how it knowing happened. all this. I think I take back my criticism. I'm impressed so with go. what they were able to do with these circumstances. <laughs> well, I'm about to take huge exception to the script writing, and we're going to quickly discuss what I find to be the most implausible part of the movie. So, kind of going back to where we were, the Powell, the police officers, radioed clearly radioed for backup. We've got the chief out there now. We're kind of starting to develop this weird dynamic where the chief's ready to go in. Powell's not so sure because he thinks McLean is a cop, which why he doesn't just ask him that or why that's not verified, we don't know. But he can tell by the way he talks, he probably is. This is the most unrealistic part of the movie. The police, within two minutes of arriving on scene, and I'm talking about with everybody, have now completely mobilized where they're ready to execute a raid. Do you have any idea if this was real life? It would be weeks later before they would even think about trying something this daring. But within literally minutes of getting out of their cars, they're ready to stage a full-on assault on the building. No idea what they're getting into. No idea who's inside. They're ready to go. Also, McLean sees they're mobilizing. I think maybe Officer Powell even tipped him off that that's what they were about to do. And he is livid. Now, let me ask you this. I want to know what's changed. Because bad guys, hostages, wife, those were all in play when he was radioing, trying to get the cops there, freaking out, throwing bodies off the roof to make sure the cops came in. We're still bad guys, hostages, wife. Now cops are coming in, and he's really upset about it. Hey, 40% done when the movie started. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, there was a few issues. <laughs> I can't remember if there was anything that occurred between those two points in the movie that demonstrated their firepower. The, that he didn't know about before, but I honestly just can't remember. The only thing, because I really tried to think about this, the only thing I think that was different was McLean now had a machine gun. So maybe at this point he thinks he can handle it from the inside, 
where when he just had his handgun, he needed the police. I'm not sure, but it was, it was very strange. That's fair. And was this when they sent in the the car, or was that in a little while? I think that was all all part of this. No, that was all this time because yeah. I, I kind of have a I have a hodgepodge of notes, and if, apparently my whole problem with the way the rest of this next part of the movie goes down is that the building never catches on fire because I write. They discharge a missile, they drop C4, and somehow nothing in the building burns. Oh, can't melt melt steel. That's right. I mean, we kind of already knew that in the the top floors, there's what's going to burn. I mean, it's just all concrete. It's not like it's a a construction site. Speaking of that, just made me think of something. Uh, Google, I mentioned the Die Hard Nintendo game. Google the cover of it sometime. Fair. Just, just throwing it out there. Okay. <laughs> Back inside the building, the cocaine man has now let it be known that he works in sales, and he is now going to take over negotiations with the bad guys. Question, is this going to go well? It's going to go about as well as the negotiations in Waco went. <laughs> Actually, you know, you know what? How much better of the movie would the movie would have been if that guy <laughs> was doing the negotiating? He probably could have talked Hans Gruber off the ledge. Probably could have. Could have got to a peaceful resolution. He would have got, he would have got him to set the whole building on fire. <laughs> yeah. Coke guy uh, doesn't come out of the negotiation alive. No. He did his last line of cocaine. No, but he, he said he negotiates million-dollar deals every day. So, you know, what's different here? That's that's the uh, that's the, the tact he went with, but I'm starting to think this guy was not as good a salesman. He should not have been upper management. <laughs> Well, cocaine makes you feel invincible, uh, so I'm told. Oh, goodness. So, your your point about the Die Hard and Nintendo game, is this a very Twin Towers? It looks, it looks disturbing, doesn't it? Yeah, especially at a glance. Once you kind of look at it, you're like, okay, that's one building. But at a glance, it looks like two towers that are individually on fire. And you don't happen to still have that game, do you? No, it's worth money, I think, if it's in good condition. I'm looking at uh, on eBay, and this may be an unopened, you know, just still in the box. $7,500. Okay. That'd be all right. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's the uh, only way I'd want that game is some kind of mint condition collector so you never actually play it because it is (laughs) trash. All right, so they kill Cocaine Man, because I think we're kind of coming up on the uh, the climax, if you will. Yes, the resolution. Have we gotten to when Hans Gruber's character begins to say the word detonators <laughs> every other sentence? Have we got to that point yet? Well, the uh, the uh, there there one guy that's been working on the safe the whole time. His, he's not gonna. He's making progress, but not quick enough. And now 
I guess they're to the detonator point of this, right? Yeah. He's doing a lot of generic typing. Yes. And that's my pet peeve in movies and commercials. Is Where they're just, just pounding away. Yeah, they're just like, hey, can you uh, figure this out? Oh, yeah, sure. I've never seen this computer or anything before. I've never been here. I've just typed for 12 seconds straight. And then, oh, there it is. Very true. If only it was that easy. So he's hacked everyone's Twitter. But now they're going to need <laughs> they're going to need explosives. But they McLean, need the detonators. But he he's stolen yes. them though from either Carl or Carl's brother. What was in his backpack was was all the C4 and the detonators. <laughs> <laughs> also, if anyone's wondering, Leo Rush is still in the limo. And is not concerned at all because he's listening to music. So he hasn't heard yeah. the rocket launcher yeah. or so police storming the building. They've detonated C4. He's just sitting in the limo. Everything's fine. The music was on very loud. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so we get... Um, I'm trying to remember what happens next. Because the police threat has already been thwarted. They basically shot up that police vehicle to, yeah. to no end. Oh, yeah. They shot it up. They shot it with a <laughs> rocket launcher twice, and I still don't think it was destroyed because it was on fire, and then they were like, run in there and get those guys before they burn to death, and then the fire kind of burns out, and the the car is still just kind of there. I mean, I, I had a little bit of a thought of, Maybe we just keep pressing forward because <laughs> how many rockets could they possibly have? Just playing your odds there, I guess. So the FBI is also on site. So I, I did. There was a couple other just weird threads. Well, the one is the stupid news reporter thread. Yeah, who's trying to figure out what's going on? He goes to the house to threaten the Hispanic maid with calling INS. Like, do we really? Was that really necessary for the movie? Well, that's one of those. And then also, you've got <laughs> it's a bad guy, so he has to be all the way bad. We have to show you yeah. how bad he is, how dirty he is. Yeah, we're, we're about to write the ending, and in the ending, he's going to get punched by somebody. But we have to establish why. So he's got to be an absolute prick from <laughs> the first second that he's on the scene. Yeah, exactly. So, the, so then, then there's a there's a flurry of action. The FBI is threatening to go in. There's this, you know protracted battle up on the roof that uh, I'm guessing we're getting to the cover of the video game. My note says that the roof blows up in the longest sequence <laughs> of all time. Was that uh, they blew the roof when Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson <laughs> were flying by? Yes. Um, I, I like the fact that they were just doing bits. <laughs> yes. In this movie, like we'll just have them both be Agent Johnson, and then I saw because I watched something about the making of this that's on Netflix this morning, and some of the other things that they added in. So when the cops and the SWAT team are going to try to storm the building, and the uh, the one of the you know thieves, robbers, whatever that is of Asian descent. And he's got his machine gun there, and then he gets distracted because he's standing by the snack bar, and he's looking at all the... And next thing, when they go back to him, he's eating a Nestle Crunch while he's waiting for him to 
to come in. And then in that part as well, I think there's a very brief scene where the SWAT team is running towards the building. And, you know, they're all in uniform. They're running in unison and whatever. But there's one guy, he's running through. There's, like, these rose bushes. And one of the thorns gets him. And he just briefly, like, turns. And he's like, oh, ow, like that. <laughs> and there was these little things I've never noticed before. And I've probably seen this movie 50, 50 times. They just put in because they're like, yeah, we'll just have fun with it. Why not? So, so this was on Netflix. I may have to go back and watch this. This sounds yeah, like something I would be interested in. It's I can't remember. I think it's uh, called The Movies That Made Us. And it, there's only like four or five episodes. But it, the, the one on this movie was really good. That's hilarious. Now I'm going to look into that. So Argyle's still sitting in the limo. Everything that's happened he's missed. But now he finally observes something of interest. So the bad guys, when they were getting positioned early on, they had parked some vehicles, and they have this trailer. And all of a sudden, out of it comes an ambulance, which I'm assuming was the plan to get away. So Argyle, again, totally out of touch, sees the ambulance and immediately thinks, well, of course, I need to crash my limousine into this ambulance. Because why wouldn't that be the first thing that pops to your mind? Well, he didn't do it like right when they backed it out of there, did he? I thought no, but he, he did just it, saw he did it, it pretty quickly confused. before they before they got out of there because he does. He crashes the limo and, and incapacitates the ambulance. Yeah, but I think he does that l- later at the end because he also there's a CB in the limo and he starts hearing some of the chatter as to what's going on. Yes. But there is there is a continuity issue with that ambulance and I think Okay, okay, so at the beginning of the movie and I think they ended up cutting this scene or this shot but when they first walk into the building uh all the bad guys there's a brief scene where they all walk out of like the back of that truck and there's no ambulance in there whatsoever <laughs> and it's like like a one or two second thing and they you know they shot the film and then they went and re you know then watched it and they were like yeah, that's going to be kind of a problem because that ambulance is not there. And then an hour later, there's a scene of, let's back the ambulance out of the same truck. Amazing. I don't, I don't even... I don't even know what to know say. What <laughs> well, we're getting down to the to the very end of the movie here. So, the Alan Rickman showdown with John McClane is coming up. John McClane has done something very ingenuitive in the world of gun placement. He's taped a gun to his back. <laughs> well, hold on. We skipped we skipped one very key interaction here is when because they needed the the detonators to blow the roof. Yeah, detonators. We need we need to go back a little bit because I, I have a couple of notes. Go for here. It. Detonators. So we go back to that, and then that's the scene where so John's character and Hans have talked to each other through this whole time, and they're basically taunting each other, you know, one way or another uh, over the CB, but they haven't talked face to face, and they cross paths as Hans has gone to look for the detonators <laughs> and he convinces well we think Did he, he convinces <laughs> Did John McClane that he's one of the hostages oh yeah and he even has the has the sense to at some point in time glance at the employee directory that's up here and pull the name of Bill Clay 
to convince McLean. And you think that, oh man, because then McLean hands him a gun and like, you're watching this probably for the first time and thinking, oh my God, is this how this ends or how's he going to get? I totally bought it. I thought he had duped McLean for sure. But in a huge swerve, what the do you gun think is I empty. Am? Some kind of dumbass <laughs> give you a gun. <laughs> that was great. But then I was like, they they blew the just a little while after that. Uh, uh, Bruce Willis, I mean John McClane, he's on the roof. He's got to get the people off the roof. The the FBI are you know they're basically like we're taking out the bad guys and eh, if this cop and some of the hostages get taken out, that's just collateral damage is essentially their attitude towards it. And one of the guys is like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I was in Nam. And the other agent Johnson's like, I was like 12. I don't know. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about, but that scene when they blow the roof and Bruce Willis jumps off, he actually did that jump. And it was the very first thing they filmed for the movie. Wow. And so he jumped off the roof and whatever the thing that he was supposed to land on, like, I don't know if it was some of the force from the explosion behind him, but he didn't land exactly where he was supposed to. And he like bounced and almost slid off. And it would have been like another, I don't know how far to the ground. I want to say it was like another 50 feet to the ground. And like, he slid pretty much to the edge of this thing before it stopped. And, of course, he's like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that almost happened. And the director <laughs> joked, like, well, yeah, that's why we did this scene first. So, you know, if that happened, we'd be able to just yeah. move on. Call Stallone have, and start over. Right. We wouldn't have to do – we wouldn't have you die and then have to just film Stallone's head on your body <laughs> throughout the whole the whole movie. Thoughts to Paul Walker. Ah, oh, jeez. Indeed. Okay, so now proceed to climactic moments. No, sorry, and I know, and, and we did we did skip around there at the end. And my apologies. My my notes are so rambling and all over the place because I was trying to eat popcorn, watch the movie, ask you questions, and take notes. But um, but essentially, y- yes, the John McClane at some point had a chance to tape a gun to his back. The showdown with Hans Gruber ends with Hans uh, taking a swan dive out the window. Yes. How many diehards did they make, Glenn? Uh, five. Is the wife in the second one? That's a good question. Because when they when they when this yes. ends, I mean, it's it's happening. I mean, like. It's happening that night. Like he's still got glass in him, but I mean it's it's happening immediately. So, I think she is in the second one. Okay, I don't think she's any in any of the ones beyond that. But I think she's in uh, the second movie. But yeah, so at the end again, he pulls the swerve. He walks in, and Hans has his wife at gunpoint, and basically, you know, at this point, McLean's just out of options. And then he just pulls the, uh, he has his hands up behind his head, you know, and he just pulls the old maniacal laugh (laughs) move, which everybody else just starts laughing. And then the camera slowly pans to see that he's got the gun 
So genius. Nice masking tape. <laughs> so genius. What a, what, a, what a great move. There's would you no like way another, that would work, by the way. <laughs> would you like another fun fact that'll take two seconds? Always. Of course. So Alan Rickman also really, they didn't film it. They filmed it like on a whatever, like a separate stage, not at that building, his fall. But when they did the fall, he had to fall, I think it was like 40 feet. And uh, so when they filmed it, the they set it all up. He's holding on to her watch. And then they had him attached by some rope. And then the other stunt guys, basically they were going to, the whole thing was, we're gonna go three, two, one, and then pull, and then he's gonna he's gonna fall. So they got it all set. Well, the guy that's the stunt director kind of pulls the other two stunt guys aside and says, "Okay, when we count down and we go three, two, when it gets to one, you pull it," because the idea was to get. So that was his actual reaction of like fear and surprise when he started to fall. So that was like a legit human response. He was not very happy. <laughs> Once he had landed, but hey, so that's just the movie do, do biz, guys. Do you think his his gripe was, "Hey, I'm a very decorated and accomplished actor, so maybe Joe stunt technician shouldn't be trying to pull one over on me to get a good reaction." Also, was he that accomplished? I think at that time, I think his stage acting, I think he was well known. Yeah. but well, yeah, in England, I mean that's. <laughs> Uh, what's is the, that even a is that even a country? Well, here's what I want to yeah, know. I mean, what what's the ex- acting exchange <laughs> rate on that? Like, is that's four to one at best? Here's what I want to know. So, you just detailed, you know, that stunt story, and then also the Bruce Willis where he almost slid off of it. So, in addition to not having a completed script, they also didn't have actual stunt doubles. No, they did. Well, then why but, is Willis in this? Uh, he. He demanded to, and fun fact that I learned today, he lost like most of his hearing in one of his ears from doing these stunts, either from oh impact gosh. or in explosions, one of the two. But he he wanted he wanted to do them, and he got paid five million dollars to do this movie, which in 1988 was more than what five million <laughs> is right now. <laughs> so the the last question about the Alan Rickman stunt. Was he in his regular costume that he wore in the movie, or was he dressed as the Blue Blazer when this happened? <laughs> God. Man, that would have been, if he had been holding on to a lanyard, it would have been perfect, perfect symmetry. If he had died, and they're like, well, we'll just keep filming. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, look, just work around it, brother. The uh, movies were better before CGI, though. The fact that they had to do this and put their lives in the line, they had some skin in the game, man. They earned their money. It wasn't all done in post-production. That's good. It's the way things should be. They're losing hearing in their ears. That makes me feel like they earned their money. It's worth it. And one other thought or comment I had, just in general, to the Die Hard series, this is the only Die Hard movie y'all have ever seen? No, I've seen Live Free, Die Hard, the one that... The last one. Yeah, you know what? I've seen that too. How funny. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Not bad at all. So I've definitely made diehard sandwich board references (laughs) on this podcast. You have many times. Which diehard is that? That's diehard three. And I don't think the original sandwich board is available 
unless you have like an original copy of the movie. I think if it airs somewhere, it's altered now. But I mean, y'all are familiar with that opening scene, right? Even if you haven't seen that movie, I'm not, I'm not. at all. No. Oh, that might be. Let's just run through all the diehards. Let's just do it. This is a diehard podcast. I'm I'm on board with that. I've never seen I, anyone I, except you know, yeah the last one. Why not? So, parting parting thoughts for me on Die Hard. One, it, it uh, way more cussing than I was expecting. Two, way less overall plot than I was expecting. <laughs> I mean, they basically dropped him in a situation, and then it was an hour and thirty minutes of just fighting, shooting, and him trying to get back to the party. Basically, there was there was no nuance there it was it was it it was basically an unrelenting action for the whole time yeah it was very much like when they you they set the scene as the whatever the lock has you know these seven mechanisms or whatever that we have to get through i in my head thought it was going to be a lot of cat and mouse they're getting through them, and then McLean's like trying to, okay, well, I got to do this to stop mechanism three. And like, they said that, and then, you know, the one dude went over there and was working on it, and it was really never referenced till they got to the C4 part at the end. No, yeah. and they got it. They got through, and they got the, whatever it was, $30 million in bearer bonds, <laughs> which eventually just flew out the window, and the, <laughs> the homeless are running around with them. Like, <laughs> Not exactly sure what they are, which I would be in the same group. What is a bearer bond? Well, if it's anything like Paul Bearer, I'm interested. <laughs> I only know, I know what money is, I think. But beyond that, I'm like, those just look like certificates they give to you after you've, you know, gone to camp somewhere or something. Yeah, but these but, have no value. <laughs> But yeah, my yeah, my overall observation is I was expecting a lot more character development and story to to warrant five in the series, and instead it was it was essentially just a, hey, here's everybody's name, let's start shooting. Um, it gets a nine point five out of ten from me. Only I just don't like the scene where he shoots at a fellow officer because I backed the blue. I'm gonna give it. I'm going to give it 5 out of 10. And the only Good reason Lord. it's getting a 5 is because of it's knowing no all that went through to even make the movie. This is ridiculous. This is an, an affront to our our freedom and society. A 5 out of 10? It's not a well, good movie, I'm, man. I'm looking, forward, I'm looking forward to Die Hard 2 when they defund the police. <laughs> That, that's Die Hard too. He's just at like union meetings trying to talk. Yes, people. and he sets up shop in Chaz <laughs> when if a I chop zone it, breaks out. Because I, I definitely uh, the first one and the third one are the ones that I've seen by far the most. I think the second one takes place in an airport, if I remember correctly. But. Maybe we're going to find out very soon. That you don't have a bad bone in your body. Put the bruises on your ego, 